Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. The Oscars! Perennially, the second biggest annual TV event next to a certain football game, the Oscars are as much a cultural touchstone in the world of showbiz as it is a lumbering dinosaur of continued questionable relevance. Not that we mean to badmouth the institution in any way, but then again, we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't. The fact is, after 92 years, 67 of those years broadcast on television, there comes a time when one starts to ask themselves just how many tricks a show has left up their sleeves in an effort to get people to tune into it. After all, once you have some rando streaking past David Niven with no clothes on, that's a pretty tough act to follow. Probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. But today, we want to take on something that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences thought would draw people to their TVs and be something that people would talk about for years to come. Well, at least they got that part right. Just not the way they expected. In an effort to attract people to what was already a sizable built-in audience who was probably going to tune in anyway, the people behind the 1989 edition of the Oscars thought they could use a little magic from the kingdom of the same name. But because the use of this magic turned out to be both highly unorthodox and extremely unauthorized, the members of the Academy soon realized that the Oscar goes to telehell. Like we said, the Oscars, for most of its years being broadcast on TV, has had its fair share of ups and downs, too many of which are worthy for their own episodes in the not-too-distant future, and we don't want to keep getting struck by lightning anytime we mention them. For this story, however, we begin with a trip all the way back to 1988's Ceremony, where despite pulling in a relatively sizable audience, even adjusted for this day and age, in the words of legendary British TV viper Victor Lewis Smith, its critics were less kind. The Los Angeles Times reported that the show was, quote, the Michael Dukakis and George Bush of TV awards programs, parched, drab, and leaden. You kept hoping that they'd draft Mario Cuomo, end quote. Which, speaking as a lifelong native New Yorker, is a much more fair comment than I should give it credit for. But I digress. The great Tom Shales of Amazon.com's Washington Post said that, quote, Of hope there was little, and of glory almost none last night at the 60th Annual Academy Awards. Even considering the low standards set in previous years, the program seemed unusually lackluster from the word go, end quote. Of course, the bulk of the venom was squarely directed at the person who hosted that year's ceremony, and also hosted the previous year. One, Mr. Chevy Chase. Soon, demon, soon. Anyway, Matt Rausch, who I believe still works for the equally lumbering dinosaur that is TV Guide, said of Chase's performance, quote, He stopped the show, cold, over and over. As the ever-unctuous host, he tried to get laughs by picking his nose and sneezing into his hand when his ad-libs failed, which was often. End quote. Good evening, Hollywood phonies. (laughs) 
Tonight will mark the beginning for a very few lucky people and the end of a lot of friendships. Throw in a number of categories with foregone conclusions and predictable winners, and the end result pretty much equated to the show being more boring than paint drying, cheese aging, snails racing, and approximately 12 merchant ivory movies put together. After realizing how much flack they wound up getting for putting on such a boring show, the Academy immediately declared to themselves that next year would be different. Which brings us to the tale of one Mr. Alan Carr. The story of Alan Carr is the story of one who would go on to have a showbiz career full of ups and downs. The biggest upper was when, after impressing some executives at Paramount Pictures with his marketing and promotion skills, particularly on 1977's Saturday Night Fever, that the brass of the movie company put Carr to the test when they selected him to co-produce and co-write a big-screen adaptation of an ongoing Broadway hit, which turned out to be 1978's highest-grossing film of the year, Grease. On the other side of the coin, however, Carr took his talents over to another relic of the 1970s, as he produced a flaming turd known as Can't Stop the Music. It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music. Once you see it, you'll know why you can't stop the glamour. You can't stop the excitement. You can't stop the dancing. You can't stop the laughter. But most of all, you can't stop the music. You can't stop the music. And it's a shame that we're a show that covers bad TV moments because this movie is worthy of being attacked with a machete. To be completely fair, however, Carr's efforts on that film earned him a singular achievement, being named the first person ever to win a Razzie Award for Worst Picture of the Year in 1981. Hey, sometimes it's best to be first at something than to be nothing at all. Fortunately, Carr bounced back, when in 1983, he teamed up with Broadway mainstay Harvey Firestein to put on a musical version of the classic French farce play La Cage à Fall, a show that ran for five years and also won Carr a Tony Award for Best Musical. And as proof that some things take on a life of their own, La Cage eventually morphed itself again into a comedy classic. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. So suffice to say, despite ups and downs that Carr had throughout his career, he was still able to take the good with the bad and become a somewhat durable producer. Which brings us to 1989. The Academy realized that they needed somebody to help bring some much-needed energy to their 61st annual ceremony, after years of being told that the event had become too dry, too stodgy, too boring. For whatever reason, even though Carr had been preoccupied with Lacage and had not produced a new show of any kind since 1984, the Academy went with him anyway, either because they realized that he had a unique image in mind for the show that nobody had ever seen before, or they chose him simply because nobody else was available. Regardless of why the Academy chose Carr to run the show, the die had been cast, and Alan Carr would officially helm the 61st annual Academy Awards. Now all that mattered was what exactly Carr was going to do to freshen things up. 
For starters, the way an award was presented had changed. Instead of saying, and the winner is, like they did for 60 years before, Carr and the Academy agreed to change it to a more formal, and the Oscar goes to. Because even though this was the biggest award show in the world, in wake of the greedy, yuppie 80s nearing a close, perhaps it was wiser to make the ceremony feel less like a competition. Other changes included alterations to the green room after recipients got their awards, as well as increasing the number of presenters handing them out by having more duos instead of individuals. Little changes like that have remained award show staples ever since. But perhaps the most surprising of the changes was that of the idea of doing the Oscars without a host. Now keep in mind, this was long before social media came about, when somebody's unfortunate past would be dug up and any chances of that person hosting a major showbiz event would fly out the window. But for there to be no host in the late 1980s, when most award show traditions have lied dormant for decades, certainly raised a flag or two. After all, it's the host's duty to start the show with his or her monologue. Not having that happen would be like ordering lamb without lamb sauce at Hell's Kitchen. Where's the lamb sauce? Come on, man. I'm Where's sorry. the lamb sauce? sauce? Right here, Chef. Lamb sauce it. is coming up. Nevertheless, Carr had a plan for the show's opening. And while on paper it sounded like a surefire hit, the execution of the plan would prove to be anything but. And we'll detail the 11 minutes it took for the Academy to realize what a horrible, horrible mistake they made. After the break. Throughout the year, ABC presents an impressive lineup of specials. This glitter city is having its 75th anniversary, and everybody is celebrating. Happy birthday, Beverly Hills. Cary Grant was everyone's favorite leading man. ABC is proud to present a glorious tribute to a film legend. The faces and performances that put Hollywood movies in the world spotlight. Be there as America picks the all-time favorite movies. And hold on to your seats. From the silver screen to prime time, the very best of the men and women who put their lives on the line just for the fun of it. The world's greatest stunts. The night all America awaits. It's the magic of Oscar, the 61st Annual Academy Awards, live. March 29th, 1989. George H.W. Bush was beginning his term as President of the United States. The movie Major League was tops at the box office. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central and Mountain, we're greeted to the all-too-familiar sight of celebrities parading the red carpet outside the Shrine Auditorium in Hollywood. We get our usual preamble of who's who and who's wearing what for a couple of minutes. Until after all of that is said and done, we then cut to the lobby of the auditorium, where longtime reporter for Variety magazine, Army Archard, welcomes viewers to the show. And in doing so, he also welcomes an unexpected guest. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's one of the great legends of Hollywood. She's back with us tonight, Miss Snow White. Good evening. Oh, good evening, Mr. Archer. It is so exciting to be here tonight. And for the benefit of those who have eyes versus ears, the person portraying Miss White is not a cartoon, but rather a character actress by the name of Eileen Bowman, someone who naively but innocently thought that her appearance as a live-action Disney princess on one of TV's biggest events would catapult her to fame. 
or as she would put it in a 2013 interview with a Hollywood reporter, quote, I basically fell off the turnip truck from San Diego and landed in LA. I went for what I thought was an audition for Beach Blanket Babylon at the Beverly Hills Hotel. They gave me 15 pages of music to learn. I auditioned, and the director said, we want to see if you fit into the dress. There was a Snow White outfit, and a hairstylist, and a makeup person. I got dressed and made up, and they said, now we're going to go somewhere. That somewhere turned out to be Carr's house for an audition, immediately followed by a visit to music legend Marvin Hamlish, who happened to be the music director of that year's ceremony. After weeks of rehearsals, the show was about to go on. And now, so do we. I'm a little late, though. Can you tell me how to get into the theater? That's easy, Snow. Just follow the Hollywood stars. Follow the Hollywood stars? And let's pause here for a second. Once again, for the benefit of those who are listening to this instead of seeing it with their own unbelieving eyes, yes, she's dressed as Snow White, and yes, she's somehow confused Snow White for Minnie Mouse. For reference sake, here once again is the actual voice of the actual Snow White. Anyone could see that the prince was charming. The only one for me. And here once again is Miss Bowman's attempt at doing the same thing. It's almost like they're separated at birth, aren't they? From there, we see two unfortunate souls in eyeless star costumes leading Miss Bowman down the aisle to greet all of the Hollywood stars that are in attendance. Much to everybody's shock, surprise, and in some cases, horror. Speaking of horror, she can sing, too. Be very afraid. Stars with glamour are gleaming and bright. Look, I don't want to rag on Miss Bowman. This was, after all, her first professional gig. But in the half minute that she's warbling the tune, or even as she was putting on the Snow White outfit backstage, she had to have realized that she was making a major career error, whether it's performing at the Oscars or not. Then again, you know what they say about things being too good to be true. After giving the audience a reason to re-up with their respective therapists, Snow White makes her way to the main stage. Good evening, and welcome to the 61st Academy Awards. It's so exciting to be back in Tinseltown. I've missed it so. I remember the movie premieres at Grauman's Chinese Theater and the wonderful star-studded parties at the Coconut Grove. Why, I have so many wonderful, wonderful Okay, first of all, I know she's in character, but she was only 24 years old at the time, according to the Hollywood Reporter article. She probably had to look up what the Coconut Grove was in the paper edition of Wikipedia. And second, the more she speaks, the more I'm thinking it's less of a Snow White Minnie Mouse hybrid that she's trying to do, but rather her own version of Betty Boop on amphetamines. As we move on to the main centerpiece of the performance, a recreation of the aforementioned Coconut Grove complete with all the stars of the day that used to inhabit the establishment. Thing is, the stars are far removed from their 1930s, 40s, and 50s heyday. So when Ms. Bowman approaches them, one has to wonder if the elder stars even realize where they are. But before we pay a visit to the Hollywood home for retired actors, we first get a visual metaphor for anybody who wants to consider moving to L.A. to start a movie career. As a gaggle of dancers desperate for a big part strut their stuff, 
while the audience is still trying to comprehend what the connection is between Snow White and the rest of modern society. This goes on for a minute that feels like 20 of them, until we get another piece of an increasingly incomprehensible puzzle. Ladies and gentlemen, Merv Griffin! Yes, ladies and gentle demons, that Merv Griffin. The same guy who created Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, as well as his own talk show in the 60s through the 80s, is also involved in this mess. And while in this mess, he sings a couple of bars of his other claim to fame, just a few years before Zazu and the Lion King would try to horn in on his business. I've bought a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as From there, Griffin then parades the stars of yesteryear as though they're about to become soiling green. And also a friendly reminder that that movie took place in the year 2022. Think about it. Surprisingly, even though some of the stars of the past look like they would rather be anywhere else, there's actually a few moments here that are kind of charming, such as the great Sid Charisse, still showing us why she's one of the greatest dancers of all time, even at age 67 when she did this. Mr. Tony Martin, his beautiful wife, Sid Charisse. And right about now, you're probably wondering to yourselves, this may be cheesy, and the high-pitched Snow White might be a little too much. But what really makes this as bad as people say it is? <sighs> Prepare yourselves, as Mr. Wheel of Fortune acts as our messenger of doom. Isn't it exciting, Snow? Isn't it thrilling? It gets better. Meet your blind date, Rob Lowe. Okay, hold everything! Let me recap the first five minutes of this performance for those who are just now sobering up. We've got... A carbon copy high-pitched Snow White which is led into a theater by a bunch of costume stars who can't see out of their eye holes. The same counterfeit Snow White greeting everybody in the audience much to their horror. About three minutes of dancing, star parading, and Merv Griffin. And now, we've got Rob Lowe in a predominantly musical performance. Rob Lowe? Musical performance. Rob Lowe? Musical performance. Like many train wrecks known to mankind, this one you will absolutely not look away or keep your ears turned away from. I guarantee it. <sighs> Proceed. Used to work a lot for Walt Disney Starring in cartoons every night and day But she said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay I know a lot of time has passed since this event happened, but considering that Rob Lowe is, as of this recording, currently on a Fox television drama, I just hope beyond all probability that the network doesn't try to convince him to become a contestant on a future episode of The Masked Singer. Hell, if American Idol was on at the time this took place, you just know, you just know what Simon Cowell would think of both of their talents combined. You couldn't win this competition if you were the only person in it. In a million years. And as hard as it is to believe, it gets worse. Now you made it big in the movies. Came to Hollywood 
Yes, folks, this is really happening. When watching this episode, I had to stop and start the video again at least a dozen times just to make sure I don't laugh my ass off. That's how painful this is, folks. And now you get to live that same pain with me. And believe it or not, it gets even worse. As a random backup singer with a coconut drink on her head, yeah, you heard me, she tries to be a saving grace, only for Low and Snow to pipe up again. can believe it, it gets even worse still. As Miss Bowman, trooper that she is, belts out one more off-key mini-number before she leaves Hollywood for good. Dreams come true, dreams come true in the Chinese theater. It's a place where people come to near and far. From the plush of your seat in the Grauman's Chinese Theater, wherever you look, you see a movie star. Now she's going to make the Disney face. Her lip is going to quiver and her eyes will flutter, but they won't ever actually close. But do not feel sorry for her. She stole a year of our lives and we're right to be pissed. Thankfully, the worst of it is behind us, as the remainder of the number is nothing more than a platoon of choreographed ticket takers setting up the final piece of showbiz's biggest fever dream. As Miss Bowman is affixed inside what I can only describe as a costume apparatus. Not an actual costume that people can take on and off easily, but from what I can gather, even though it may be an awkward camera angle doing this, it kind of looks as though Bowman is secured inside something that makes it look like she's holding the front entrance to Hollywood's Chinese theater on her head. All the while, she's walking in a mock dress that's about 20 miles long that looks like Beyonce's lemonade outfit if it was worn by Lizzo plus 10 other people. Simultaneously. All the while, Miss Bowman has this look on her face that all but says... The second I get off stage, I'm going to hire a hitman to take out Alan Carr. We then get the classic strains of Hooray for Hollywood. And when all is said and done, after nearly 11 minutes of torture that even Guantanamo Bay would consider to be too much, the show's first presenter, the legendary Lily Tomlin, steps out of the set piece and pretty much telegraphs for the audience at home and in the theater just how batshit crazy those last 11 minutes were. And think of it, more than a billion and a half people just watched that. And at this very moment, they're trying to make sense of it. <sighs> so are we, Lily. So are we. And so are the estimated 50 million people domestically that saw the same thing. To say nothing of the estimated billion people that couldn't unsee it. To make matters more interesting, this was also the first Oscar ceremony to be broadcast to the Soviet Union. So perhaps people watching at the Kremlin were taking feverish notes. Someone else who was taking notes as we saw the events unfolding on TV... Critics. The same critics who just one year earlier made it clear how boring the show was were only resting up for what was to come the following year. 
and boy, did they hit hard. The Los Angeles Times stated, quote, The Academy Awards telecast on ABC was surprisingly devoid of magic. It was on the musty side. End quote. That was one of the nicer reviews of the show that we could find. Others have called it everything from embarrassing to pointless to even a gay bar mitzvah. That last quote, by the way, came from Miss Bowman. But despite all the criticism that it wound up getting in the press, there was one other group of people who were watching the ceremony who were flat out pissed. You knew this was coming. The Walt Disney Company was far from pleased that the Oscar cast had the unmitigated gall to use one of their characters not only without permission from the company, but that they turned the character into something that it was never meant to be. This resulted in the happiest litigators on Earth suing the Academy for copyright infringement, unfair competition, and dilution of business reputation. While I only know what one of those things means, it was certainly enough for the Academy to issue a hastily written apology to the House of Mouse, and thankfully, the lawsuit was later dropped. The ironic part about that was that for decades, the Oscars aired on the ABC television network, and had they waited until, say, 1996 when Disney bought the network, they would have been likely to pull off the same stunt without any legal ramification. But once again, I digress. As for Bowman, she left the stage and never looked back. In the interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Bowman lamented that the entire experience would be an insult to the word harrowing, mentioning, quote, I was immediately told that they wanted me to go on as Snow White to the governor's ball with Rob Lowe. That's where I put my foot down. I said, I'm not going to be your little doll dressed as Snow White at the governor's ball. I went to my dressing table and was taking my costume off and there was Olivia Newton-John using my blush, which I still have. She was my idol, and she turned to me and said, How did you ever do that? How did you ever get out there in front of that many people and do that? After that, I showed up at my sister's in L.A. to say goodbye, and she was like, You're crazy! Do you know how many people would pay for this opportunity? I said, Let them. I went home to my own bed in San Diego and woke up to a lawyer at my door at 8 o'clock in the morning with a folder full of papers I had to sign. One of those was a gag order. I thought I'd done something wrong, so I was scared not to do what they asked of me. I signed a piece of paper saying I couldn't talk about the event for 13 years. I don't know why that was the number they chose. I remember sitting in my condo after being served the papers, watching the news, and the Snow White number was all that was on the news. I had no idea. My phone never stopped ringing. It was awful. End quote. Really think about this from her perspective for a minute. Here's someone who wanted to make a name for herself in show business, and the first gig she ever got was the Oscars. The friggin' Oscars! And the performance was a combination of high profile and a total embarrassment. So much so that it makes one want to skip town after it happened out of fear of further embarrassment. In that regard... Miss Bowman probably has more integrity than any actor, either living or dead, and you gotta salute her for making that kind of decision. But as much as we praise her bravery, we're still here to pick things apart. Where does the single most baffling televised production number of all time fall into the Hollywood walk of shame that is Telehell? Snow White may have seven dwarves, 
but we have nine circles that are much, much taller. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. The obvious one of the week is two-fisted wrath. First, wrath from the TV critics who probably thought to themselves that they accidentally took a hallucinogen to believe that such a performance would ever exist. The second came from the Walt Disney Company, whose legal department will probably receive a lifetime supply of Oscar swag bags from the Academy in the hopes that the incident remains to be forgotten. Except, of course, for little piss-and podcasts who are trying to remind you that the event existed. To say nothing of the fact that this was a big event that was hoping to draw in a larger TV rating than the previous year thus giving the ABC network a chance to rake in incredibly large, uncalled-for profits. Enter Greed. The unauthorized use of Snow White during the performance not only made the Mouse House angry in a legal sense, but the fact that they turned a character from an innocent princess to, with apologies to Miss Bowman, a total bimbo fresh off the bus from nowhere that felt like a slap in the face not just to the company, but to a beloved animated feature that stood the test of time, thus marking down fraud and heresy against the character. But let's also not forget who was responsible for putting on the show in the first place, as this was Alan Carr's first, last, and only time he would ever put on a ceremony, thus putting his status as a producer in limbo. In an interview with the New York Times three days before the event, Carr made a lot of promises that were hard to keep, and some that were kept in their own bizarre way. Carr stated, quote, The Oscars used to be a Hollywood party. The awards were given out at a banquet at places like the Coconut Grove, but since 1944, the awards have been presented in theaters. So, Mr. Carr conceived of the idea of recreating the old Oscar party on stage, and believing that many viewers want a better look at what the star-studded audience is wearing. Of particular note, the article went on to talk about six million tulips being flown into Holland for the occasion, and that Carr added, quote, The shrine's going to look like an Easter basket. Oh, <laughs> it looked like a basket, all right but certainly more like a basket case. The Oscars Snow White incident earns five out of nine circles of telehell. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences realized that it had a major problem on its hands. It certainly didn't want to go back to the stodgy, boring show that they found themselves having a reputation of being, but they certainly did not want to repeat the Snow White debacle ever again. When I got my big break 56 years ago, I never thought that someday I'd be standing here. But frankly, it's about time. No, 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 no. That doesn't count. In spite of how awkward that moment was, that was actually sanctioned by Disney for the movie's 1993 VHS release. Remember videotapes? Sure you do. Anyway, the members of the Academy made sure something like this would never happen again otherwise while at the same time realizing that sometimes the best changes are the subtle ones. In light of the events, the Academy put together a special committee for the sole purpose of trying to improve the ceremony the following year. It was decided that Carr would never make his mark on an Oscar telecast ever again. And in came one of the longest-serving producers the show ever had, one Mr. Gilbert, Gil Cates, who would later go on to produce 14 ceremonies. It was thanks to him, and presumably other people behind the scenes, that the awards were able to focus less on flashy, meaningless numbers, and more on personality-driven moments, a point they made abundantly clear when the powers that be not only decided to have a host for the following year's awards, but that the person that they would hire would become the standard bearer for award shows for the next decade. Is that for me, or are you just glad I'm not Snow White? 
I thought we'd bring her out and do the Lombada, the forbidden dance. Billy Crystal would go on to host the Oscars nine times, and almost every time he hosted, he would deliver not just with his trademark sense of humor, but with an equally trademark Best Picture medley, which ironically started out as a joke against flashy production numbers, but has since become a Crystal signature. It's a wonderful night for Oscar, 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 who will win? Since then, the Oscars have maintained its fair share of ups and downs, from watching performers who have been struggling for years to win one finally get theirs. You're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? To the perpetual elephant in the room about diversity issues. Man, I, I counted at least 15 black people on that montage. From inspiring speeches. This moment so much bigger than me. To envelope mix-ups. La La Land. The Oscars has remained one of the hallmarks of television with its equal share of good and bad moments. And thankfully, they got the worst one out of the way. Don't tell me about my speech. I'll know just what to say. Then again, there's always next year. Oi. Next time on Telehell, love stinks. And for our first countdown list of the season, we present some of the worst examples of how love and television simply don't mix. Most commonly known fact about Jules' sex life. That's dormant. <laughs> Jules, let me see that card. He said he likes to be tied to the bed. <laughs> Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.